over 20 years ago, I, I wrote a book. And, and this book was basically my testimony broken up into a series of chapters or, or sermons. Um, and I sent the, ma the manuscript, I sent it to a few publishers, a few Christian publishers to see if I could get it published. I had dreams of being a writer. And one of those publishers sent me a very, very nice rejection letter. And I didn't hear from some of the other publishers at all. And so I decided that I would go ahead and I would self-publish my book. See, there was a couple here at Bethesda at the time, the Maloney's, who owned a quick copy shop, and I paid them to spiral bind my book. The, the one and only publication run of my book, The Christian Next Door, consisted of 15 copies. And, and I was thinking about this the other day, you know, if I ever become famous, those 15 copies might be worth something but I wouldn't count on it. I actually got one of the copies here with me this morning. Um, I'm going to actually read some excerpts. Well, I'm going to read some excerpts from a chapter that was titled, I Liked the Big Girls. And I've already been asked several times. I'm really curious about that. So the chapter began with these words. I like girls. Doesn't matter if they're young or old. I like all girls. And then it continued and said, My admiration of the opposite sex began as a fairly young child, around five or six years old. See, my parents have told me how I used to like the big girls on the old Red Skelton show. Now, I know that unless you're 60 or over, you're thinking, Who in the world is Red Skelton? No comments from my left over here. Well, the big girls that I liked on that show were the fully grown women who danced or sang on the show. I don't really remember. And I'm not sure why I liked big girls at such an early age, but I did. And maybe I was just a little advanced for my age. I don't know. As I understand it, though, and the reason I know this story is because my parents thought my infatuation with the older women was quite amusing. And so throughout my lifetime, I periodically heard about liking the big girls. But I continued on as I, as I wrote in this chapter. I said, well, you know what? I also liked little girls. I had two girlfriends, Karen and Gail. Back in kindergarten, we had to walk in pairs going in and out of recess. And so when you walked in pairs, you held the hand of your partner. I guess it was a way to kind of keep the lines more orderly and moving. And to this day, just a few years later, I still can remember the time I got to hold Gail's hand. She was so cute. Not as cute as my wife. <laughs> Good recovery. Of course, my other girlfriend, Karen, was also cute, too. Karen lived across the street from, from us. My mom used to babysit her while her uh, stepmom worked, and Karen and I were very best buddies. We played together all the time, but I really do think that Gail was the one I intended to marry. So let's skip ahead a few years, and in my book I said, you know, I had my first official date at age 13, and her name was Dawn, and we went ice skating, and I was too afraid to hold Dawn's hand. Well, after our first date, I decided I didn't like her anymore. It was kind of a middle school thing, I guess. Not really sure why, but we never dated again. But something else happened around those middle school years. I saw my first what you might call girly magazine. And before seeing the magazine, I had no idea what a naked woman looked like. And I remember being kind of surprised, but I liked it. 
And with that, the seed of lust germinated in my young heart. Now, I tell you this story because maybe your story is similar to mine, maybe not. But for many of us, learning how to lust began sometime in our teens. See, God created us to be attracted to the opposite sex. And that's a good thing. That's a great thing, in fact. But like all good things, our sin perverts it. Lust and all sexual sin is a, is a huge problem in our culture. And sexual sin, in case you were wondering, is our topic this morning. Can't wait. Actually, I have to tell you, this is one of the toughest messages I've ever had to write. Um, I delivered it upstairs, and I'll tell you this, delivering it was kind of tough as well. And I asked upstairs, I'm going to ask you two to give me uh, a good measure of grace this morning. Another thought came to my mind, though, as I was writing this message this week is, you know, we've got an associate pastor here. And I thought, you know what, if I would have been smarter, I would have made sure this message series would have lined up so that Dave, Pastor David was preaching today. I knew the passage was coming. I had it on paper. I could have avoided it. But actually, though, I couldn't avoid this. And it's a topic I wouldn't want to avoid. It's, it's much, much too important. See, sexual sin is such a sensitive subject. It makes us uncomfortable. It, it can offend. It can, and can cause friends to, to go separate ways. And I even realized that talking about it this morning, that some might be thinking, you know what, we shouldn't be talking about sex in church. And the fact of the matter is, we need to talk about it. The Bible talks about it a lot. And Jesus talked about it too. And before we begin, let us pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you created us. You created us male and female. You made us different. You put in our hearts a desire for the person of the opposite sex. It was good. But when sin entered our world, our healthy, normal desires became perverted. Father, I know so many of us struggle with some form of sexual sin, so I just ask that you would be with us this morning. Help us to remember that we are forgiven. Teach us. Show us a better way to live. Give us the strength, the strength to resist temptation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know we've been studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is actually a, a message of discipleship training. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. If you've got a Bible, you might want to open your Bible, but the words are also found in your outline in your bulletin, and they're going to be on the screen. Jesus' words to us are very clear. Reading from Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus' words there are straight on, and they're words not just for the men, they're words for the women too. He said, if you look at a person of the opposite sex with any lustful thoughts, you've sinned. You've committed adultery in your heart. 
And that's the thing we've been talking about with the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus in this message goes to our heart. Because Jesus knew that our, our heart is what drives our actions. And so if we allow Jesus to change our heart, our actions will begin to follow. And the fact is, you all know this, we live in a very oversexed culture. We're bombarded on TV, movies, magazines, internet, and so on with images and storylines that promote lust. Sexual innuendo and jokes fill TV and fill the theaters. And the fact of the matter is, is it's not helpful. It contributes to the sins of sex that are so prevalent. It adds temptation. Now to be tempted is not sinful. We all get tempted, but we can resist. But the temptation out there is so great. Now, I wouldn't ask anybody to raise hands, but I think if I did ask how many of you have been touched by sexual sin, that pretty much every hand would go up because we've either committed such sins in the past, we're committing them now, or we've been sinned against sexually by somebody else, or we know somebody who's been affected by these sins. Now, we don't need to, to go through a list of all the sexual sins, but we, we should start with a framework. And, and the framework is this. The Bible's clear that sex outside of the marriage is wrong. It's sinful. And then second, marriage, the Bible states that marriage is between a man and a woman. And our culture doesn't agree with that. Culture says if it makes you happy, do it. It also says, you know what, everybody else is doing it, so it must be okay. And the truth of the matter is, just because everybody else seems to be doing something doesn't make it right. Not everything that makes us happy is good. Our culture would also say that some of us are just born a certain way. And that's so true. Every one of us is born a sinner. My sins are different than yours. Your sins are different from the person sitting across from you. But we all sin. But this is important, and I want to make sure I say this very clearly. I want to add something to it. First, first we can be forgiven. We are forgiven. But the second is we are to love sinners. Because think about it. If we didn't love sinners, we wouldn't love anybody, including ourselves. There's no hate here. There is love. But that love leads to a call to repentance. And every one of us in this room needs to repent of some sins. But there's also good news. There, there's a better way. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But first, I think we have to deal with this topic, this sensitive topic of sexual sin. And Jesus delivered the message he did because I think so much of sexual sin originates with lust. Lust is a sin. Lust can lead to adultery. Lust can be the cause of rape. Lust drives the porn industry. Lust can cause sexual harassment. Lust can lead to premarital sex. Lust can result in homosexual sin. And the fact of the matter is, is all those sins, and probably another half a dozen that I didn't mention, hurt people. And so this morning, we're going to look at sexual sin from, from the broadest effects down to the singular, most significant damage that it does. And so if you've got your, your bulletin in front of you with the outline, you might think, oh my gosh, they made a mistake. They start with point number three and go to one. We're actually going from the broadest, number three, down to the narrowest, number one. 
And to help teach us this morning, we're going to use Jesus' words, but we're also going to use a very well-known story of a true king named David. Maybe you've heard of him. David's story of sexual sin begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It seems we're told that in the spring of the year, it was a time when the kings were out fighting battles. And they were out fighting against each other. But, but there was one king, a guy named David, who stayed home. David had a lot of time on his hands. He wasn't really doing what the kings were supposed to be doing. And one afternoon, David happened to be walking on the roof of his house. And he happened to see a woman. And she was bathing. She was taking a bath on her roof. And we think about it and we think, oh my gosh, who would take a bath on their roof? Well, back then, that wasn't an uncommon practice. But the problem began with David. See, David didn't simply notice this woman and then look away out of respect. That would, that would have been the right thing to do, right? It's okay to, to we, we can't help but see what's in front of us, but he should have looked away. No, David looked probably twice or maybe three times. And he probably gawked at her. He looked at her long enough to realize the Bible tells us that she was very beautiful. And lust was growing in his heart. When he wanted her, he wanted her badly. And he was in a, a great position to meet that need because he was the king. And the king has the power to do what the king wants. And so the king had the power to have this woman for himself. And that's what he did. He sent some of his men to get her. And David did this even though he knew that Bathsheba, this woman, was married, and she was married not to just anyone, but one of his soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. And he had David brought to her, and he, to himself, and he slept with her, and a child was conceived. You see, David's lust led to adultery. And if you know the story, you know that was just the beginning of David's sins. And so as we look this morning at, at the hurt caused by sexual sin, we're going to start at that broadest level. And at the broadest level, sexual sin hurts other people. Now, I do want to stop here because we're talking about sexual sin this morning, but actually everything that I say this morning could be said about any sin. So maybe, maybe you're sitting there this morning and you think, you know, that's not an area where I really struggle. Well, I'm sure you've got another sin that you struggle with, and so just insert that because all sin has consequences. All sin hurts other people. See, when Bathsheba became pregnant, David, if you remember, tried to cover his tracks. He ordered her husband Uriah to come home from the battle. See, David, David had an idea. He thought, well, if I can just get her to come, him to come home and be with his wife, and so twice he tried to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. He even made sure that Uriah got drunk one time, that maybe that would work. And then that baby would be thought to be Uriah's, and he was going to be off the hook. David would have gotten away with it. But Uriah wouldn't do it. This soldier had much more honor than the king that he served. Uriah was a man of honor who couldn't enjoy his wife while his fellow soldiers were dying out there on the battlefield. And so David, David was a smart man. He realized that he had a problem. His sin was going to be uncovered. But David was also a smart man. He came up with a solution. 
And you probably know the solution if you know the story. He had Uriah set out to battle and basically had him killed. He had the, him be on the front lines and everybody pulled back so that he would be killed. And then David took Bathsheba to be his wife. And we look at that and think, oh, what an honorable thing to do. Kill the husband, take her as wife. That's, you know. David's lust led to adultery. It cost a soldier his life. It broke up a family. And Jesus said this, You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery is forbidden all the way back into the Old Testament law, but the root of adultery, Jesus says, is a lustful heart. But let me ask you a question. You don't, I don't want you to answer out loud. I just think, is lust so bad? I mean, does lust really hurt anybody? I hope you realize the answer to that is yes. It does hurt others. It is bad. When a man looks at pornography, for example, and he's married, he's telling his wife that she's not good enough. He'd rather look at images on a, on a screen than live in reality with his wife. He's betraying his wedding vows. You know, the porn industry victimizes women. Some of those women are sex trafficked into porn. Others maybe turn to porn or prostitution because they've got a drug addiction. When a person looks at porn, though, they feed the industry. They feed the devil and they victimize women. Because that girl on the screen is somebody's daughter. She might be somebody's sister. She could be a niece or somebody's best friend. And so lust, even just in itself, is dehumanizing. It, it turns people into objects. And Jesus warned against lust because he knew that that was the first step of a slippery slope that could end in adultery for some people. And so by caring, comparing lust to adultery, Jesus showed us the severity of that sin of lust. Now, adultery in the Old Testament was punishable by death. Leviticus 20.10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. They dealt with it severely. Dr. Daniel Doriani wrote of the severity of adultery. He said, first, adultery is the most grievous of all sexual sins. It betrays the promise of a lifelong exclusive loyalty in marriage. You know, yesterday upstairs, we had a wedding here, and the bride and groom promised to be each other's alone for as long as they both shall live. And it's a great promise, and it's a promise that we pray that for every married couple that they hold up to that. Adultery is turning away from that promise that's made in the presence of God. Adultery leads to chaos. It rips apart a family. It can end in divorce. The spouse experiences abandonment and violated trust. It hurts children. But you have to remember also that it can be forgiven. And then second, Doriani says it comes back to our heart. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, again, is focused on our heart. If Jesus changes our heart, if we allow him to work and change our heart, everything else will start to follow. Then if we narrow our focus just a little bit from hurting other people, we see that sexual sin also hurts us. Proverbs 6, 27 and 28 asks, Can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? 
And, and the writer concludes, he says, so it is with the man who sleeps with another man's wife. He who embraces her will not go unpunished, but the man who commits adultery is an utter fool, for he destroys himself. He will be wounded and disgraced. His shame will never be erased. King David's sin not only hurt Bathsheba and certainly hurt Uriah, but it also hurt David. The child was, that was born out of adultery died. And then the prophet Nathan delivered some news to David of some other consequences of his sins. See, as a result of David's sin, Nathan said the sword would never depart from his house. There would always be war and strife in David's household. David's wives would be given to another man publicly right in front of David. And his whole family would rebel against him. See, David's sin cost him dearly. You know, there are, there are other personal consequences of sexual sin. I heard this story quite a few years ago from another dad. It was about a teenage boy, and this boy wasn't married, so adultery obviously wasn't possible. And yet this young man realized the consequences of his sexual sin. See, he admitted to his father that he had gone too far with his girlfriend. He said, I gave away part of myself to her. It's gone. He said, I can never give that part of me away to my wife. And his remorse was genuine. He realized that all of our sin has consequences on other people and on us. But here's the key. Even though our sexual sin hurts others and hurts us, the primary damage is done to our relationship with God. Sexual sin hurts our relationship with God. After the prophet Nathan delivered God's message to David, David said to Nathan, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Earlier we read Psalm 51 in our call to worship, which was written by David. And in that psalm, David wrote to God, he said, Against you, you only God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, David confessed that his sin was ultimately against God. And, and, and we hear that, and we know the story, and we, and we wonder, well, wait a second, didn't he sin against Bathsheba? I mean, she had a part to play, but when the king calls for you, you got to go. Didn't he sin against Uriah? I mean, he had the guy killed. And of course he did, but yet how can he say, I have sinned against you, God, only you? And that's because... David knew that all of our sin is ultimately against God. We do sin against other people. Our sin hurts others. Our sin hurts us. But our sin, is, our sin is what separates us from God. That's the main thing. All sin is against God. And I remember quite a few years ago, I was talking to a, a woman about the sexual sins of one of her daughters. And this woman said, how can it be wrong? It makes her happy. And then she compared her daughter's sin to some other sins that people commit that actually very obviously hurt people. And I understand where she was coming from because we like to do that. We like to grade our sins in that. But there was a, a problem. And we just said it. All sin is against God. All sin is against God. And there are consequences. Jesus comes back and says some very 
harsh things. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of, the me- of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And, and those words seem very harsh, don't they? Um, but Jesus here was showing us the, the reality of unrepented sin. It leads to hell. He was painting a very grotesque picture. Jesus was saying that it's better to go through life maimed than to be condemned to hell. Now before, though, anybody thinks that Jesus was suggesting that we pop out an eye or we cut off a wrist, we have to understand Jesus' original point. See, he wanted his original audience and us to take our sexual sin, to take any sin very seriously. He wasn't suggesting any self-mutilation. He was saying we need to remove sin from our life. Think about this. If we're tempted by pornography, we should refuse to let our eye wander. We should act as if we have no eyes to see pornography. We are blind to it. We start by setting boundaries. We don't go certain places, either physically or in our mind. Those boundaries can help protect us from giving in to temptation, because we're all going to be tempted. But if we set boundaries, they help protect us. And, and, you know, as I say that, I know that's an easy thing for the pastor to stand up in here and say, you know, just set boundaries, you know, don't go there, you won't sin. And I would guess, though, many of you are like me. When it comes to my sins, I try to resist them. I tell myself, I'm not going there. I am not going to do that. And most of the time, that approach will work for a little while. It might work for a few weeks or maybe a couple months. But by focusing on that sin that I want to avoid, it's in my mind, and it always tends to creep right back into my heart. Because my mind is weak. And so in time, those sinful thoughts turn into actual sins. I give in to the temptation. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 21, in the New Living Translation, Paul said some words that we're familiar with, but they're really important for today. He said, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. And whenever I hear that, I want to say amen. Paul continues, he says, I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. And Paul says, oh, what a miserable man I am. And then he asks a question. He said, who's going to free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? And then what's great about Paul is he asks questions, and a lot of times he answers his own question, and he does here. He says, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And then a couple verses later, Paul reminds us of something that is so so important. He says there is no condemnation to those who belong to Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation. Heaven is our home. In Psalm 51, David asked for forgiveness in cleansing. When he wrote this, he said, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. That's what happens when we ask Jesus to forgive our sins. We're washed clean by his blood. We're whiter than snow. When God looks at us, he doesn't see sinful Mark or sinful whoever. He sees Jesus' righteousness covering over us. 
See, the answer to our sins, sexual otherwise, is Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, he's always the answer. He's the only answer. Through Christ, our sins are forgiven. We trust in him. We repent. And that's the best news ever. But the fact is that Jesus does more. Not only does he forgive us, not only does he make us right with God, if we ask him, Jesus will actually help us battle those sins that lurk in our heart. And his help is practical. A great example of his help is found in Philippians 4.8, where Paul wrote this. He said, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If we want to rid our heart of sin, if we want to resist temptation, replace that so sinful thoughts with what is honorable and what is pure and what's lovely and what's commendable, what's praiseworthy. And yeah, we're still going to fail sometimes, but Jesus will give us the strength to resist. And the stronger we go in Christ, the more we'll be able to resist. And very practically, just focus on the good things that God's put in your life. Think about Jesus. Think about what he did for you on the cross. Consider how much he loves you. Know that every single one of us has great value in Christ. Commit to bringing joy to other people. Look to fill your day and mind with good things, things that honor God. And then I think we need to remember the words of 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When temptation comes, and I guarantee you it will, turn to Jesus. Let Christ fill your heart. Let him forgive you. Let him give you the strength to resist temptation. He will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. They're words that, that uh, he doesn't pull any punches. He goes straight to the heart of the matter. Father, many of us struggle with various forms of sexual sin, either in the past or now, or, or we know somebody that does. And uh, We just ask you to forgive us. We ask you to forgive them. We ask for the strength and the, and the will to resist temptation. Father, we turn our eyes towards you. We look towards Jesus. We focus on the good things that he has given us on the life. We remember that we have value, that Christ died for us, that he loves us so much, that we belong to him. And it's so reassuring to know because, Father, we resist some temptation, but still every one of us falls sometimes. And when we fall, we know that you'll get us back up. You will forgive us. You'll put us back on our feet. But Father, we also know that we have to repent. We have to call our sin what it is. It's rebellion against you. And we have to put our trust in Christ and put our trust in you that through you we can become Jesus, light of the world, that we can be people who help others. Help others who are also struggling with temptation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
you're able, please stand for our closing song.